So James chapter four, we're gonna go there. We're starting, we're continuing a series of messages called Just a Closer Walk. And this is part two. And we've been doing something a little bit differently with the word of God. Um, the title of the message this week is Finding God's Way Back to Peace, okay? So here's what we love to do too. In-house, you would usually get notes in your hand, but there's a tab right there. It's called Notes. And so click over to that tab and you can uh, fill them out digitally and then you can print them out and you can put them in your Bible. Uh, but here's the thing. We want, to, we want to help you in this message to find God's way back to peace. Find God's way back to peace. And when you get those notes out, underline God's because that's a very key moniker in the title of the message. But here's what this, this, this season has allowed us to do. We're gonna read God's word a little bit differently than we normally do. So we're not gonna do it that much differently. I'm gonna ask that you stand for the reading of God's word right where you are. Just stand with me. I'm standing, you can stand, no problem. And if you're with your kids, it's a great moment to teach your kids that we stand for the reading of God's word because when we hear this word, we're not hearing the word of men. We're hearing the very words of the living God. So stand in your homes and your houses right now and Watch this video, we're gonna play it. James chapter four, from beginning to end, hear the word of the Lord. Watch this. James chapter four, verse one. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war or take it away from them. Yet you do not have what you want because you do not ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Look here, you who say today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and will stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans and all such boasting is evil. Remember, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that the next few moments are governed by the Holy Spirit. We pray that our hearts are opened. And I pray in particular, Father, for that 
person who is logging on to waterschurch.tv or our YouTube channel for the first time, I pray that in this moment they realize how precious they are to you. I pray in this moment that they realize how they have not gone so far that your grace cannot undo and outrun their sin. And I pray that we will see Jesus. Him and him only, in his mighty name we pray. Everybody said, amen, God bless you, have a seat. So I wanna preach a message, finding God's way back to peace. James chapter four, and let's put this verse right up on the screen, because this is kind of like the central verse of the chapter. James chapter four, verse eight, it says, draw near to God, and then look at this, and he will draw near to you. I love that verse. Here's why. Number one, this is in God's word. It's, it's in the scriptures, and it's an instruction to come close to God. Here's what that tells me. Number one, God wants you close to him. Isn't that awesome? He, the, the, the God of heaven, maybe, maybe you've always believed that God is angry and mean and nasty and he's just upset with you. Uh, like the baptism candidate we just saw testify. Can I tell you that that is a lie from the pit of hell and God is a loving, gracious heavenly father who wants you, he thought of you, he created you and he wants you to be with him. So number one, it tells me God wants me to be with him. Number two, I love this part about this verse. It says, and he will draw near to you, which tells me that when we step toward God, he steps toward us. God responds to those who reach out to him. And that means no matter where you are, no matter how bad you think you are, no matter how awful you consider yourself to be, that you are not so far gone that even if you're running headlong away from God, if you stop and you turn and you make one move, all you need is one move to, toward God, he will turn toward you and he will reach out to you and he will bring you back to himself. I think about the prodigal son and in that wonderful story in Luke chapter 15, it says that the prodigal son came to himself in the pigsty and in the mess of life, he had made that mess. He, he in many ways deserved that mess and all of his friends left him and all of his money was gone and he was lonely. And then he thought about his father and he decided to make his way back. And the scripture says that he had this planned speech and yet he didn't even get through it. He only got through the first half. He said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And that was it. That's the only part of the speech that the father let him get through. And the father ran to his son, wrapped his arms around him, put the best coat on him, put the ring on his finger to restore him to sonship, and then slaughtered the fattened calf saying, this is my son and he's home and he's alive. It's a picture of how God responds to people who are lost in sin, no matter how dirty or messy their lives are. God comes and responds when we come close to him. But here's the key. The third thing about this passage that I love is that it's, it's basically telling us the ball is in your court. It's in your court. You, you have a relationship with God that is as close as you want it to be. Did you hear that? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You are as close to God right now as you wanna be. And so in this season of 
cultural crisis, corona crisis, in this season where we have to separate from each other, we have an opportunity to not separate but actually draw close to God. And it's my prayer that that's what happens for you. This is my prayer that you draw closer to God in this season than you ever have been to him before. Can I, can I tell you that I'm a bit afraid about something? I know, I know. This is the season of fear, and the last thing you need is me to give you more reasons to fear. I'm not giving you this fear. This is my fear, and I don't wanna say fear, I wanna say concern. Okay, let me tell you what I'm not afraid of. I'm not afraid of death. Um, I'm not afraid of my life ending because I know where I'm going. I know my home is in heaven. So I'm not afraid of that. And I'm not afraid that the end of the world is coming, okay? Because here again, I know that Jesus is in charge of the world. And actually, the end of the world for Christians is actually a very good thing. That's when Jesus comes back. Amen. So I'm not afraid of the end of the world. I'm not afraid of these weird um, procedures and... Uh, you know, kind of, what, what would you call them? Uh, community, community-wide procedures that we put in place to separate. I don't like them. I think it's a little bit, if you want my opinion, this is my opinion on a preaching. I think it's uh, a little bit overboard. I think we are freaking out a little bit too much. I think we are a bit of a coddled culture. And so because we are so coddled as a culture, so used to being comfortable, we're scared of anything that might hurt us. And so we're kind of overreacting. That's my personal opinion. You can feel free to disagree with that. I'm not preaching. That's just opinion. So, but I'm just saying I'm not afraid of all that we're doing. Um, I think we have to pray for our leaders and we will, but here's what I'm afraid of. Here's my pastoral concern. Again, fear is a bad word. My pastoral concern is that right now there are people who are opening their hearts to God because of the crisis, and it is quite possible that a lot of people will open their hearts to God in this crisis, and then as soon as it's over, they'll close them back up again. See, that's my concern. That's my pastoral concern. Because as I said last week, I was in the church around 9-11. In fact, I remember 9-16-2001. The churches were flooded, but then 9-23, a week later, they weren't as flooded. Because here's what happens in crisis. Here's what happens. We sometimes think that crisis is a good thing because it will open people up to God, and that's true. But sometimes crisis actually reveals that our hearts are actually not after God. Our hearts are actually just after the things that God can give us in the midst of crisis. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Like sometimes we think that Crisis will give us a new worth relationship with God. And for some people, that's true. But sometimes crisis just reveals the way that people respond to God normally. And here's, here's what I mean. Some people, when crisis hits, they truly repent of their sin and they truly turn to God like never before. But then some people are different and they just turn to God just during the crisis to kind of soothe the crisis, to kind of be some kind of like, you know, ibuprofen or aspirin kind of relief for the pain in the midst of it. And then when the pain is gone, we don't even know he exists anymore. And so the Lord led me this week to James, <laughs> the book of James, James chapter four. And we just read it. We just saw it on the screen. 
Here's the thing about the book of James. If you know the Bible at all, the book of James is towards the end of the Bible. It's written by a guy named James. He didn't title it James, the church fathers did. It's a letter of concern. It's a letter of concern from James who many theologians believe is the brother, the younger brother of the Lord Jesus, half-brother because his father was Joseph and Jesus' father was God. But nonetheless, he is the half-younger brother of Jesus. Sorry, Catholics, we believe that as Protestants, but if you're Catholic and you wanna still believe that, I don't care. Here's, here's the thing, I believe that G Mary did have other sons and daughters after Jesus with Joseph, naturally. Anyway, James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he's the pastor of a church in Jerusalem, but he's writing a letter to the churches scattered throughout the Roman world in the first century, and James is, if you know the Bible at all, it's a tough book. It's, it's a book that pulls no punches. <laughs> it's a book that is kind of like the one that you either love or you avoid like the plague. <laughs> because James has some powerful truths to challenge on. You know who I call James? I think of James as like the friend that you have that doesn't have a filter. Anybody have a friend without a filter? Okay, if you're my friend, I'm that friend because I have no filter. Okay, this is, you know what I'm talking about? A friend without a filter, so you have like, maybe you have like 15 friends and you go to the hairdresser and you get, or, or barber, and you get like this new haircut and you think I'm gonna try something new and so you go and say I wanna do something new and they, and they do something different with your hair and it's totally different and then it, and it doesn't look good and you don't think it looks good and you're kind of disappointed and so you, so you go out in public with your new haircut just to see what people think and, and how many know that all your, all your friends with a filter will say, oh no, it looks good. It, it looks like a great haircut. Yeah, yeah, great job, good choice. I like what they did there and, and everything. But then you run into that friend without the filter and they look at you and they're just like, what did you do to your hair? <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? You have a friend that just kind of bl blurts out with no filter the exact thing that you deep down know is true about you, but you didn't want to hear it. Yeah, that's James. <laughs> James looks at the church and says on a regular basis, what are you doing? That's not Christianity. Like, that's James. He is our friend without a filter. And that's why I say you either love the book of James or you run from the book of James like the plague. In fact, I gotta be honest with you, I get a little bit weary of Christians who love the book of James because, <laughs> because sometimes they just love telling other Christians what to do. But here's what the book of James is. Okay, it's in the notes. The book of James is the test for true faith. It's the test for true faith. Now, in the middle of this coronavirus, that's pretty much what we've been talking about, right? Tests. Test, 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 test. We need more testing. We need more tests. We need faster tests. We need quicker tests. We need more convenient tests. Why do we need these tests? Why is the crisis really about the number of tests that we have? Here's why. Because right now, our culture needs to find out who has the virus and who doesn't. Because the problem that you and I can create for other people is that we have the virus and we don't know we have the virus and then we just start hanging out with other people who don't have the virus and then we infect them 
with the virus, right? So, so we need to get tested. We need to find out if we have it or if we don't. Because if we don't get tested and we have it, here's what we'll do. We'll cause a lot of damage to other people. Okay, why am I emphasizing that? Because we need a test for true Christianity. Because if you say you are a Christian and you are not a Christian, it's like having the coronavirus and not being tested to know you have it. You will do a lot of damage to a lot of people if you live as a Christian in name only. Are you with me? If you are with me, just say amen right where you are. I know I'm preaching well. I don't need you here to say it. I know it's good. There's a lot of people. You're sitting there right now. You're listening to me. You're listening to this message, and you could name, I bet this, I guarantee this, you could name the people in your life who said they were Christians and acted nothing like Jesus. You could name them. Because those are the people that hurt you the most, right? Those are the people who did the most damage for your faith. Maybe it was a priest. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a Baptist youth pastor. Maybe it was a parent who never said, I love you, but would go to church and act all holy on Sunday. Or, or maybe it was a Boy Scout troop leader who talked about Jesus in the, in, the, in the gathering, but then you found out he had all these private sins. And the problem is that there's too many Christians that are running around with the Christian in name only virus. They've got the spiritual coronavirus and they infect all kinds of people with this pseudo-Christianity and then they do all kinds of damage and no one holds them to account and therein lies the importance for a friend who doesn't have a filter named James who is gonna call it like it is, who is gonna tell us what real faith in Jesus looks like and who is going to make sure that if we're gonna claim the name of Jesus, we better check ourselves to see if we're walking in the truth. That's what the book of James is. Here's why the book of James is important for preachers to preach. Here's why the book of James is important for you today. Because in every church gathering, there are typically two kinds of people. In every church gathering, there are typically two kinds of people. I call them servants of Christ and observants of Christ. Servants of Christ and observants of Christ. Okay, let me break down the difference. Servants of Christ are people, they're not perfect, but they are ready to repent and turn to God instantly. Like their, their hearts are surrendered to God. They want to do what God wants them to do. They don't always get it right. They don't always nail it. They don't always obey, but they know when they obey, they've got to confess it and they've got to come back to him and they've got to repent and they've got to say, Father, forgive me and change me. I need you. Okay, that's a servant of Christ. I'm not saying they're perfect. Please don't think that I'm talking about people who have got it nailed, Christianity nailed. That's impossible this side of heaven. None of us are perfect until Jesus comes. But the problem person is that observant of Christ. The observant of Christ is someone who loves the idea of Jesus. Uh, the observant of Christ 
loves to watch the church in action. Can I dare say that an observant of Christ even loves the Bible? They do, they love the Bible. But they have a way of, of approaching the Bible in that they constantly see the Bible as talking to someone other than them. Come on, somebody. You know what I'm talking about, right? They love to go to the Bible to say, hey, that person is not acting Christian. We see this on Twitter all the time. <laughs> we see this on social media all the time. Someone's always using the Bible against someone else. And then the funny thing is, is that the other person uses the Bible against that other person that's using the Bible against them. And it's like we're always, this, this is what observance do. Observance love to observe Jesus and then observe others and, 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 and then criticize others for not living like Jesus. When the book of James is not a test that you administer for other people. It's a test you administer for yourself. Mm. You say, Father, am I walking in obedience to the truth? It's a, it's a test for us. And James has a series of tests, and I just kind of want to run them down. In James chapter 1, 27, he says, okay, if you're a Christian, then here's a question. Are you caring for widows and orphans? Because that's what Christians do. That's James chapter 1. And by the way, waterschurch.org slash giving, please give to our missions above your tithes so that we can send more money down to Hope of Life who is closed off from the world right now, they really need help, but they care for the orphans. And so if our faith is real, we will do that. James chapter two, he says, do you show partiality to rich people? Do you show partiality to the people that you wanna be liked by? That's not Christianity. There's another test. James chapter uh, two also says, faith without works is what? Is dead. You've probably heard that phrase. That's a test that James tries to run past through us so that we would check ourselves. Um, James chapter 2 says, hey, you believe in God? That's great. Uh, got news for you, James says. Even demons believe in God. And even demons shudder. They, 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 they shake when they think about God. And so just saying, I believe in God, do you know that doesn't make you a Christian, actually. That's, that's pretty much basic belief. And so James is a test as to whether or not our faith is real or is it pretend? And then James chapter three, if you're a Christian, then you have to have control of this or you have to want to see this controlled. Not, not more cursing of your brother and sister, not more complaining, but less complaining. And, and so taming the tongue, and he talks about it being a fire, a test as to whether we are truly walking in the light or not. And then James chapter four, quarrels, fights, jealousy. Is this a part of your life? Because if this is a part of your life, you might not be a Christian. You might just be an observant of Christianity, and then James chapter four, don't slander, don't speak evil against others, and then James chapter five, uh, you've got all this money, you've got all this money, but do you care about other people? Do you, do you pay your workers what they're worth? Do you, do you, tr do you, do you honor people with your, with your giving? And, and it's a tough book. It's a book that when I felt the Lord say, I want you to preach on James chapter four this week, my first response to the Lord was, no thank you. I don't want to preach on James. James is kind of, you know, tough. I, I, I like Paul. Like, I like grace. I like mercy and all that stuff. But we'll find grace in James if we just dig a little. But here's why you need James, and here's why you need that friend that doesn't have a filter. Because if you go through your life believing that you're okay with God, believing that you're going to heaven, believing that you're truly a Christian, and you're not... 
Can I tell you that the person who's going to suffer the most is you? See, me not being a Christian only would hurt me in eternity apart from God. You not being a Christian would hurt you eternity apart from God. Test yourself. And I wanna talk in the middle of this crisis to those who are living with no peace. Now, I'm not talking about you're not irritated and I'm not talking about the fact that you're completely like oblivious to problems. That's not peace, that's just called being comatose. I wanna talk to people that you know deep down there's something in here that's just not right. You are really scared. You are really conflicted here. And I wanna help you, and this is what James wants to do, I wanna help you find God's way back to peace. God's way, not your way, not my way, not the church's way, God's way. So let's get into it, I got three points and then we're done. Number one, to find God's way back to peace, I must acknowledge the problem is in me. The problem is in me. Somebody say, in me. Okay, this is, this is the first thing. Because look at how many times James in verse one to three says, you, you are the problem with your lack of peace. Look what it says, verse one. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Quarrels and fights equals lack of peace. Conflict equals lack of peace. He says, is it not this, your passions? Oh, wow, James, thank you, friend without a filter. Your passions are at war within you. You desire you don't have, so you murder. Now, now he wasn't actually saying people murder. He was, you know, copying what his big brother Jesus said, who said, if you have anger towards your brother, you're on the way toward murder. So he says you hate others, you're angry at others. This is great. There's a great conversation right now for our political crisis where we're just angry at the other side constantly. So there's something about you inside you that's creating that anger toward others. He says, you murder, you covet, you can't obtain, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask. And then look at verse three. Look at verse three, because here it is, observance of Christ. Christians in name only. He says, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on what you want. In other words, that there's this conflict in people that for even people who go to church, their Christian Faith, if you could call it that, is corrupted by this evil condition in their hearts called passions. And, and there's two key words in these verses, you, which means the problem is in you, and then passions, which in the Greek word, in the Greek word is hedone, hedone, which we get the word hedonism from. Now, if there is anything about our current modern culture, it is tremendously hedonistic. Hedonism is the order of the day, right? We could be hedonistic with nobody around. We just need a computer screen. We can get online and we can lust after other people. We can get on our phones and we can get jealous of other people, right? We can get into social media. We can get into arguments and fussing and fighting with other people. We can watch the news and we can just blame other people. And then James does serious diagnosis Oh man, serious diagnosis. Are you ready for this? Verse four. Oh, I, again, a friend without a filter. He says, you adulterous people. Wow. Oh, James, please, no. <laughs> you adulterous people. Don't you know friendship with the world is enmity with God? And if you want to be a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. Man, James, 
no filter, but thank God for James, right? He's calling us out, he's having us check ourselves. And he uses that term adulterous, because here's what adultery is. Adultery is trying to love two people at the same time when you really should only love one. Really should only love the one that you said you'd be faithful to. And here's the thing about adultery. You can get away with adultery for a little while, but it'll eat at your peace. In, in real life, like if you cheat on your spouse, you can get away with it for a little while, but it will eat at your heart. And it'll create a lack of peace in your life. And James is saying, here's the problem. For some people who say they're Christians, there's no peace in here. Do you know why? Because you are trying to love the world when you should just be loving God. Now, if you're sitting there saying to me, and I know, some of you are about to click off. You're about to like say, thank God this is virtual church and I can just turn them off when I don't like what I, say, what I hear. Don't do that because I got some, I know that's the, that's the diagnosis, but now I've got some prescription for you from James. Because look at this in verse six to the adulterous people he's just talking to. He says in verse six, but he, and that is God, gives more grace. And that's like one of the few times in the Bible where the scripture says, more grace. As if to say, nope, you might be a terrible sinner, but God has more grace than your sin. And I love the word in Greek here for more. Do you know what it is? It is M-E-G-A-S. Megas grace. I love that. Mega grace! Like this is James saying, for all the bad sinners, here comes God saying, I've got mega grace for you. And then he says, therefore God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so the solution to spiritual adultery, the solution to the conflict in us, listen, is to humble ourselves and to say the problem is in me. The problem is in me. And the moment that you do, this is the beauty of God's grace, the moment that you do that, his grace rushes in. And he floods you with forgiveness and mercy. But you've got to humble yourself. If you proudly resist, he resists you. But if you humble yourself, he comes in and he cleanses you. And that leads me to point number two. Finding God's way back to peace is this. Number two, I must let Christ cleanse me inside and out. If I want peace, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of this trouble, I must let Christ cleanse me, problems in me, cleanse me inside and out. Now, let's get to the text, because this is from James, it's not from me. James says this. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We talked about that already. Then look at these commandments. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And it's like, pastor, you're depressing me. I just want you to lift me up. I just want you to make me feel better in the midst of this crisis. And listen to me very carefully. For those of you who say that, I could easily do that. 
I could easily just tell you, turn that frown upside down. Be of good cheer. It's okay. God is here. And if I never diagnose the real problem that's in you and in me, then all I am doing is what Jeremiah talked about, the false prophets in his day. All I would be doing is soothing the wound of God's people lightly. In other words, I just put like a Band-Aid on a broken leg and it wouldn't help you. And that's what James is doing. He refuses to just get surfacy with God's people. And if ever there was a day where preachers need to get back to the word of God and tell people what God's word says about sin, about righteousness, about judgment, it is now. It is now because, man, we could be tempted as preachers. We could be tempted to just give you what you want to hear and to tell you it's going to be okay, but we would not do our jobs. And one day we have to stand before God and say, Father, I did the best that I could to reveal your truth to God's people. And here's the truth. You need cleansing from the Father. I need cleansing from the Father. And it's only accomplished through submission and humility and turning to Jesus. It says, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be wretched, mourn and weep. These are not American values, are they? No, 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 no. Here's what American values is. Blame them. Castigate that person. Uh, go to this person and talk about your problems and then find out what happened to you in your childhood that made you this bad. Like, that's the American way. The American way is a five-letter word, B-L-A-M-E, blame. And let me tell you, there's no other way to be lame than to lay blame at other people for who you are. How many remember when Darth Vader was just Darth Vader? <laughs> Remember that? Remember when he was just the bad guy? Like, he was just bad. He was just a bad dude. And then they had to do the prequel movies. Remember this disaster, this cinematic disaster, the prequel movies, like Phantom Menace and uh, Clone, whatever, the Clash of the Clones, and then whatever. It's so bad, I can't even remember the names of the movies. And we had to find this huge backstory as to what made Anakin so bad. Because... This is the American way. Um, there must be a reason for why that person is so evil. Instead of just going to what the scripture says, which is this, that we are all bad. We all have this Adamic sinful nature. Adamic means it comes from Adam. We've inherited it from Adam's sin. We are born fallen. And here's what you need to know about sin. Some of you think when I talk about sin, I'm just talking about the bad things you do. No, 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 no. Sin, according to scripture, is a force that's inside you before it is ever an action outside of you. Sin is a force inside of you before it is ever an action inside of you. Because in Romans chapter seven, verse 23, Paul says it is, it is sin living in me that makes me do what I don't wanna do. It's a condition. It's a condition. So if you wanna blame something, feel free to blame the condition of sin inside you instead of trying to find other persons to blame. But here's the deal. The moment that we do, the moment that we say, Father, I humble myself and I know that I've got a condition that only you can heal, guess what? He gives more grace and he heals it. 
See, James sounds a lot like Jesus, his big brother, right? James sounds a lot like Jesus. When, when Jesus started his ministry in Matthew 4, 17, this was the start of his ministry. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from your sins. See, this is why Jesus came, right? This is why Jesus came. Some of you are under the, mis, uh, the, the, the false impression that Jesus is like Muhammad and Gandhi and you know, other great people of peace in the history of the world. Wrong. Jesus did not come to teach us a bunch of stuff only. He came to die for our sins. He came to go to the cross. The cross was not a cosmic accident. The cross was cosmic destiny. The Father sent the Son to die for our sins. In John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus is talking about the cross coming up, and he says these words. He says, my soul is troubled. And then he says this, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He says, God, should I ask you to keep me from the cross? No. For this purpose I came. Jesus is saying, I came to go to the cross because the condition of sin inside of the human race is so utterly overwhelming they will destroy themselves if I don't intervene and save them from their sins and take their sins upon myself. And at the cross, that's exactly what Jesus did. He paid for your sins, he washed your sins away, he ransomed you from your sins, and he offers you healing in his name. This is why the Bible says in 1 Peter 2, 24, it says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, another word for cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by, listen to this wonderful phrase, by his wounds you have been healed. Can I, can I tell you what fear is all about? Can I tell you what it's really all about? All the concern that you have in your life all the worry about what may or may not happen, all the fear of what you're hearing on the news, can I tell you what it is? Uh, three, three letters. Letter A, all fear is the result of sin. Because we know from the scriptures, from the scriptures it says that uh, Adam and Eve sinned and then they heard the sound of the Lord God in the garden in, Gen in Genesis chapter three. And in Genesis chapter three, verse eight, it says, and Adam said to God, I heard the sound of you and I was afraid. He wasn't afraid before sin. Sin, the condition to walk away from God in Adam, created a worldwide pandemic, worldwide pandemic called fear. It's a result of sin. But letter B, Jesus came to take away our sin. And then when you receive Jesus, letter C comes true. We have peace with God through Jesus' blood. That's why all those Old Testament sacrifices, all the sacrifices, all the blood, you know, the Old Testament sacrifice, if you read them in Leviticus and, and, and in Exodus, there's so many sacrifices. Literally, the altar in the temple in Jerusalem in the, in the ancient world would have been drenched in blood. It was, it was a symbol saying that only blood brings you peace with God. And those sacrifices are no more, and the temple is no more, and it stands only as one wall in Jerusalem. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, right before that temple was destroyed, Jesus, the final lamb of God, the final sin offering, put himself on that cross, surrendered himself to the will of God to go to the cross and die and bear our punishment for our sins on that cross. And at that moment, all sins for all the world was paid for. The only question that now remains for you is have you claimed have you claimed that for yourself see Romans chapter 5 verse 1 
Wanna talk about peace? Here's peace. It says this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. First John chapter four, verse 10. It says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment. That's a big fancy theological word for payment for our sins. And then I skip down to verse 18 and he says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Let me tell you why it's so important that you surrender your life to God in the midst of this crisis and you don't just simply draw near to God for some calming effect, but that you truly surrender. Here's why. Because when you're surrendered to God, when you know your life is in his hands, when you know he is father and you are child, you are daughter or you are son, when you know he is father, then you know you are safe in his hands. And you know you are safe in him. And he's going to lovingly watch over your life. And there's going to be troubles and there's going to be trials. Jesus said there's going to be tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome and you're gonna go through some rough stuff and you're gonna go through some series, seasons where you're low on funds or low on friends or, or, or low on fullness, but you're, you're never gonna be disconnected from him ever again. He loves you, the Bible says, with an everlasting love. But again, the ball is in your court. So let's get back to James because there's one more thing I gotta say from this passage in verse 13. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a town. We'll spend a year there, trade, make a profit. But you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and vanishes. Again, friend without a filter, right? <laughs> You're a mist. <laughs> like, that's not exactly encouraging, James. I don't like to feel like I'm a mist. But here's what he's saying. He's saying you need, per you need perspective. God is eternal. You're not. Well, you are eternal, but he's the eternal one, Okay? Your life is not eternal. Your life on this planet is not eternal. You're, you're going to die. You already have um, a, a spiritual condition called the sinful flesh that you only finally lose once and for all when you're in the ground, okay? So that part of you is gonna stay with you, unfortunately, until you die. But then you are raised to life immortal, and sinless at the resurrection. But here's what he's saying. When you surrender to God, you want peace? Here's what it means. Number three, if you want peace, you've gotta give the Lord the rest of your life. You, you gotta give the Lord the rest of your days. Now, this is a hard point to get. It's a hard truth to grasp because you are hearing these words at this point in history. Okay, so everything before, and then here we are right now. Here we are right now in March 2020. And then there's this huge unknown, this huge unknown that comes next. And so to say, God, I give you at this point all of this, hard. Because I don't know what this is. And James is saying, exactly. That's why... He gives us the prescription again in verse 15. He says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this. And as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and that's just evil. And, and, and what's he saying? He's saying, because you don't know your future, why don't you settle it right now to give it to God? It, 
don't don't hold on and think that you're in charge. Don't let your mind go crazy about all the things that you could or could not do or could or could not experience. Why not just say, my future, like people say at the altar when they're getting married, my future for better or for worse is yours. And I'll tell you something, when you say that, peace. You know what salvation means? It's the last thing I want you to write down, the last point. Salvation means that the Lord who took responsibility for my past has authority over my future. He's in charge. So, what if you're stuck inside for another three weeks? Surrender that to God now and say, God, I don't, I don't know what these next three weeks are going to be like. I'm going to go crazy, honestly. I, I know I am, and I'm talking about myself personally. I'm going to go crazy. Okay, but I'm going to believe that you're going to use that for my good and your purposes. Or, 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 or maybe next year this time, and you're still not married or you're still frustrated with that job or you're still praying anxiously over that child and you don't know. So right now, today, say, God, you have authority over my life and let the healing balm of the Holy Spirit fill you, cleanse you. See, this verse has been on my heart this entire season. This verse it just has been echoing in my head. It's Isaiah 26, verse 3. It says, You, Father, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. You don't know what tomorrow brings, but you can know the one who brings tomorrow to you. Surrender to him. Give him your heart. Don't let this crisis just become a momentary blip in your life where you kind of nod to God and say, okay, all right, God, I'll pay attention for a few months. And then, and then as soon as it's over, you just go back to the way you lived before. No. Stop being an observant and make yourself a servant of Jesus. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. I'm not saying you're always going to get it right. I'm not going to say life's a bed of roses. I'm going to say, though, that there's going to be peace in here. And that's a peace that the world can't understand and the world can't give you and the world can't take away from you. 